0: Opening words this morning come from Howard Zinn. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It is based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, (coughs) sacrifice, courage, kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst destroys our capacity to do something. If you remember those times and places, and there are so many, where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us the energy to act, and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of the world in a different direction. And if we do act, in however small a way, we don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. The future is an infinite succession of presents, and to live now as we think human beings should live, in defiance of all that is bad around us, is itself a marvelous victory. I now invite you to join in our opening song this morning Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. I am Elise Gould. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I'm so glad you're here with us this morning. Visitors and guests, we hope you got a blue name tag so that we know who you are and can welcome you and answer any questions that you may have. We love talking about why this community is so important to us, and we'd like to hear from you what you are looking for. We hope you'll join us after platform service for coffee and cookies in the lobby and the social hall. Also, please consider sharing your email with us on the gold sheet in your program so we can add you to our mailing list. You can drop it in the collection basket as it passes later in the platform service. I want to remind you to please silence your electronic devices so that you can be fully present with us this morning. And now I invite Richard Reese and the Earth Ethics team to read our statement of purpose so it might hear our shared values in each other's voices. Hi, I'd like to... Oh,
1: yeah, thanks. Uh, I'd like to invite uh, other core members of our team, uh, the Earth Ethics team, and uh, that includes uh, Terry Smith is coming up, Ann Baker, Lynn Silversmith. Raoui, John Kester, and obviously I'm here, (laughs) and I've already been announced, Um, and uh, our statement of purpose is, the Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive for our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the Earth. If you are new to our community of children and adults, we warmly invite you to join us as we work for a world where love and justice across all borders.
0: Thank you. As Richard lights the community candle, I invite you to all join me in the candlelighting work. May we kindle within us the Lord. On the world, especially thinking today about the Syrian people and our own troops caught in conflict. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world, and let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love. a time of meditation. Sit comfortably in your seat. Take a deep breath. Feel connected to your seat and to the earth beneath your feet. Take another deep breath. <clears throat> Close your eyes if you like, or let your gaze soften. And bring your awareness to your heart, to your heart center. As you inhale, imagine you're filling your heart with love. And imagine that love spreading throughout your body. With each breath, feel the love in your heart expanding outward to fill the space around you, growing steadily. As you fill your heart with overflowing love, bring your mind, bring to your mind the many things you feel grateful for. You may think of your own healthy body, people you love, also nourishing food, clean water, clean air, and a comfortable home. Feel the power of your gratitude to amplify the love radiating from your heart. And allow it to eventually encompass the entire planet. Consider that everything that you experience, love, and feel grateful for is made possible by the this incredible planet that sustains you. The air you breathe, the water you drink, the food you eat, and the materials that build your home <clears throat> and clothing all come from the life-giving planet you call home. Take this time to meditate on the earth for all that you appreciate in your life. I now have the pleasure of introducing our platform speaker this morning. In a community whose environmental rights had long been sidelined to make room for heavy industry, Destiny Watford inspired residents of a Baltimore neighborhood to defeat plans to build the nation's largest incinerator less than a mile away from her high school. Ms. Watford received a 2016 Goldman Environmental Prize for her important work, and she has just completed a double major in English and Mass Communications at Towson University. Please join me in welcoming Ms. Walker.
2: to share Earth Day weekend with all of you. I am a community leader in my neighborhood, Curtis Bay, and an organizer with United Workers, a nonprofit in Baltimore, uh, focused on creating fair development in our city. And in the spirit of Earth Day, a day created to shine a light on the state of the ground, of the very land beneath our feet, and our duty to protect it, as well as the people that live upon it, I want to share with you my experience fighting alongside my community to protect our land and our health. My fight for the earth, for the land, began about five years ago when I was in high school. When a group of friends and I, um, we called ourselves Free Your Voice, learned about the plan to build the nation's largest trash burning incinerator less than a mile away from our high school. I'll be honest, at the time I didn't even know what an incinerator was or what it did. Um, But through research, we found that the incinerator would have been burning 4,000 tons of trash every day. It was permitted to release 240 pounds of mercury every year and release 1,000 pounds of lead. All of this in a community that already had some of the worst air pollution in the nation. Before our fight to stop the incinerator, our group originally came together to think about what we believed in. And through that process, we found that we all had very similar core values, and one of them was the idea, the thought, the basic human right to live in a healthy environment and to breathe clean air. So when we found out about the Incinerator Project, which violated every value, every belief that we had, we knew that we had to take action. In the beginning of our campaign, no one in the neighborhood knew if the incinerator even existed. Both our mayor and our previous governor, Governor Romali, who ran for president on a green platform, um, supported the development. And it was all a lot and really overwhelming because we were high school students. And we weren't sure if there was anything we could actually do to make a difference. Um, but we knew that whether we failed or if we succeeded, that we had to do something. And through extensive organizing, reaching out to our community members, our churches, our friends, our families, our teachers, and core decision makers in the city, um, we, uh, through our collective efforts, through years of fighting and sacrifice, and fighting for this new vision for our neighborhood and for our future, we won. (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) Yeah, we won and we stopped the incinerator and we received international awards in recognition. And if this were the end of the story, close the book. If it was like the end of the movie, you'd roll the credits because like this is the happy ending. (laughs) Like, this is what we wanted. Um, But life is, of course, a lot more complicated, a lot more complex. (laughs) Um, And we know, we understand that the incinerator, every value that it violated is not the first or the last development that will make its way or try to make its way into our community. And so that's why now we're building a community land trust so that we can do truly community-led development in our neighborhood. And so the next time that the incinerator or something like it rolls into town, we have the power as a neighborhood to say no. But I don't want to talk about that with you today. Um, It's been a long journey, and I want to reflect with you all what I've learned so far through this process Um, and being a part of a really intense campaign like the incinerator so i want to share with you three core lessons that we've learned in our fight for fair development first i want to share with you what the campaign has taught us about the role and the importance of history second i'm going to talk about the power of art and its relationship in building a movement and third i'm going to offer you some challenges insights and possible directions related to the issue of racism and unifying across color lines. First, the Curtis Bay region is and always has been a frontline community forced to bear the cost of our health to satisfy the demands of the market. We have an economic system that generates wealth for some while shifting the costs and burdens to others. Annie Leonard, the executive director of Greenpeace USA said once that Our economy was designed by people to get everyone to play by certain rules. And like a game, it comes with instructions telling us what the goal is, the solutions most people are working on. That's what the solutions are. They pursue this game's simple goal, and that goal is more. More money being spent, more roads being built, more malls being opened, more stuff. In our current system, having more means that you're winning the game. As Leonard puts it, the system promotes developments that will generate more money to produce more stuff, no matter the cost. In Baltimore, the marketplace is made up of space for tourist attractions, for art neighborhoods, um, employment, and throughout the history of Curtis Bay, our neighborhood, my neighborhood, has been relegated to an area that's reserved for industrial and dangerous and hazardous work. My friends and I, we became scholars of this history. And with the understanding of the role of economics and development in mind, we learned that the incinerator and the fact of its location fits into a historical pattern of meeting the demands of the economy, regardless of the cost. In the group, we read stories in newspapers and periodicals and found that early on, when agriculture was the basis of our economy, Curtis Bay had canneries. During World War II, the community built ships During the rise of the chemical age, it became known for producing hazardous pesticides and wartime explosives like napalm and Agent Orange. I'm going to give you two examples of our scholarship that bring to light the connection of economics of the marketplace and our community's health. Take this story, for example. In 1954, debate raged about an acid waste pipeline that would run into Curtis Bay. In 1956, 40 groups protested a proposal for this use of Curtis Bay, and in a mass meeting of 300 people rallied behind a petition that would delay the permit for the pipeline. In a story from 1984 reported on the Baltimore Sun by Roger Twig, um, with contributions from David Simon, the creator of The Wire,
3: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> titled Chemical Blast Rocks Fairfield, here's a quote. A chemical explosion rocked a section of the Fairfield community yesterday afternoon, causing 14 persons, 10 of them employees or volunteers at the nearby elementary school, to be treated at a hospital for burning eyes and shortness of breath. The blast was the second major incident in the Essex industrial facility in less than a year. Last Christmas Eve, a storage tank containing about 400,000 gallons of sulfuric acid collapsed sending a wave of the corrosive pollutant into a creek adjacent to the firm's Curtis Bay facility. Principal Ann C. Fuller of Victory Elementary School reported that she could see the mushroom cloud like a bomb at Hiroshima. Catherine Goodman, a neighbor, closed her windows and doors and waited for the call to evacuate. She said, no one said anything, so we just stayed in. You learn to live with these things. The incinerator project was a routine development in the life of our community, another market-driven project extracting wealth. Maybe not this time from the agricultural projects like the projects like the cannery, or wartime pollution from shipbuilding or the big agricultural pesticides. this time, the wealth extraction was rooted in the service economy and in our trash. So lesson number one know your history. It reveals key lessons and allowed us to see our community in a way that gave us the ability to build power within it. So how do you confront this history though? This marketplace? We'd hear echoes of Ms. Goodwin's sentiment over and over. You just learn to live with these things. We would learn that we can't ignore this history and we would learn that through the power of art and the potential for transforming passive acceptance to active resistance, we can do something about it. I remember, I tell this story all the time. (laughs) Um, One day, the group and I um, were allowed to get out of school a little early to do some community outreach surrounding the incinerator. And although the group had canvassed before, the experience was still relatively new to me. And if anyone here has canvassed, you know that you can't be sure what to expect. You could be greeted with open arms and exciting conversations or a door slam. Mm -hmm. On this particular outing, I remember walking up to a house, knocking on the door, and waiting patiently, clipboard in hand, and ready to take down or provide any information. A few moments passed before an older man answered the door. I remember saying something along the lines of Hi, my name's Destiny. Do you know about the plan to build the nation's largest trash burning incinerator in your backyard? I then proceeded to tell him about the incinerator and our efforts to stop it, to which he replied, the work that you kids are doing is pointless. Curtis Bay is and always will be a dumping ground. You're not going to change that. His, I know, (laughs) his response caught the group and I off guard. When organizing around an issue, experiencing rejection and resistance is a given, and the group knew this, nevertheless, we couldn't help but feel frustrated and angry largely due to the fact that we hadn't yet studied our history. We didn't know the elements of truth about what of what he was saying. We spent a lot of time analyzing that moment. And even though we didn't realize it at first, his statement was far more deep and complex than a simple not interested. It represented the end result of a long history rooted in failed development and If we were ever going to make a change in our community, we have to understand that despite our anger and despite our frustration, or how scary and uncomfortable the truth was to accept, the man was right. Curtis Bay is a dumping ground, and it's been treated as such for generations, and its people are considered victims. Changing the fate of our community, we would learn, meant changing people's hearts and minds. But how can one even begin to change the ideals and perspectives that have been held for decades? We looked within ourselves and relied on our strengths and the tools that we had to combat the dumping ground mentality, that's what we call it. We were artists, poets, musicians, and writers. Author and historian, W.E. Du Bois, said that art is a spirit that knows beauty, that has music in its being, and that can dance on a flaming world and make the world dance too. Our hearts and minds had been set aflame by the injustices of the incinerator. Now the challenge that we faced was making the world dance. I'm a writer. And the reason I write is because from an early age I understood that words have power. When I was a little girl, my writing came in the form of storytelling, um, which usually included like a damsel in distress, I know. But as I got older and I learned about history and art and politics, those damsels became warriors and vigilantes and artists. I I grasped that even though they were put into a situation that kept them limited, imprisoned or trapped, they didn't need someone else to save them. They could save themselves. So I used that ability of creating stories to help retell ours and the creation of it became what moved us, fueled us, and sparked our imaginations. Before I joined for your voice, I was invited by the group to see Henrik Ibsen's play, adapted by Arthur Miller, called An Enemy of the People. It was an incredible play that at first, um, or rather at its heart, even though it was concerned in a town and its people in the late 19th century told the story of our neighborhood, a poor community faced with a dilemma to support the development project that will give it economic value, promise to flood the community with wealth, but at the risk of the community's health, or stop the development altogether and the community's health goes unharmed but the community remains in poverty. The play served as an eye-opener. It reminded us that through art, we could show people a way of seeing their community. So we internalized the issue, our struggle, our frustration, our fear, and we worked together to tell our version of the story through many creations. We wrote speeches, eh, like this, (laughs) Um, made poems, created paintings and drawings, videos and songs. We even created massive flowers, like literal giant uh, sunflowers that symbolize our hope for fair development and carried messages from people across the city. While we developed our art, We were also doing research and discovered that 22 public entities would be buying energy from the incinerator, one of which happened to be the Baltimore City Public School System. Yep, (laughs) plot twist. (laughs) (laughs) We realized that we could use the school board meetings as a stage to persuade the school board to get out of their contracts by reciting our poetry, by presenting our art, by sharing our writing and performing our songs. And at the time, two of our group members, Leah and Audrey, were in the mix of creating a beautiful song that they performed to the school board. We call it the Freer Voice Anthem. The room was packed with students, teachers, parents, accompanied, by a number of students from high schools across the city that we had reached out to there to support us. The song came at the end of our presentation. I vividly remember Leah and Audrey walking up to the school board, just inches away from them. um, And in just a few verses, their song expressed the weight of the issue and our call for active resistance. So lesson number two, building a movement means building on strengths. And that art is a key part of social movement because movement necessitates that you move people's hearts and minds. And what came out of that meeting, out of that struggle, was a standing ovation from the board. And they came out to our community to see what it's actually like to live there. And a couple months later, they got out of their contracts with the incinerator. And one by one, almost like a domino effect, each of the public entities got out of their contracts which was great. (laughs) But this leads us to lesson number three. Living in America means living with structural racism. And when dealing with issues of injustice, you have to grapple with racism that has existed for centuries. In Curtis Bay, there are several different communities. Include, or there were several different communities, including Fairfield and Wagners Point, and these two neighborhoods were seg- segregated. Wagners Point was predominantly white, Fairfield predominantly black, but both communities were company towns, living in poverty, working in dangerous hazardous conditions, and were forced to live in a toxic environment. Both communities also suffered the same fate. Their needs and their health were ignored, and they were eventually forced to be relocated by the government because of the hazardous conditions that they helped to create on the surface it seems this history can be read as two communities different in culture and race facing the issue together and although an element of this is true something that perspective ignores is the issue of racism that divided the two communities for instance While residents of Wagner's Point lived in houses, residents in Fairfield lived in shacks. Members of Wagner's Point had access to a plumbing system. The members of Fairfield didn't have a plumbing system and were promised this basic necessity by Baltimore on the condition of being annexed by the city. And even then, it wasn't until decades later that they even received the system. This is an example of structural racism. It also happens to be a story not told in our history books. This is a big problem because if we don't understand the layers of a situation or history, then we often obtain misguided or misconstrued ideas of why things are the way that they are. For example, throughout our fight to stop the incinerator, we have heard a number of explanations of why the community is considered a dumping ground. During a community association meeting, for example, A member referred to an influx of poor black kids in the community as things. Another time, a neighbor next to my high school placed a noose around a tree and hung it in their front yard, which faced the school. This response is, of course, racist, but these responses are not solely based out of the inherent hate or disgust or because white people hate black people. Dehumanizing black children, referring to them as things or lashing out against teens by tying a noose around a tree in your front yard, draws on and reinforces values from a system, from a society, from a structure that is itself racist. A lot of that has to do with how we educate ourselves and our educational system. More often than not, our history is romanticized and hides the complexity of race and racism which are then embedded into the basic structures that we need to keep our society going, our legal and our justice system, our political systems, our economic systems, our educational systems, so when an issue arises, we don't analyze these systems and try to identify a problem, we cast blame on each other. So when news of the plan to build the nation's largest trash burning incinerator makes its way round, the response within the community members isn't how is this possible it's what did you respect the dumping ground mentality is associated with race to justify the severe injustices that we already live with Curtis Bay used to be an all-white community just like Wagner's point the school that I graduated from used to be an all-white school and I've heard community members say that they missed the good old days when Curtis Bay was a vibrant strong and healthy community which is often called for all things were great before the black folks moved in. The fact fact of the matter is that just like Fairfield and Wagner's point in Curtis Bay, we're all facing the injustices of living in poverty, of living in a food desert, of literally breathing in poisoned air. These injustices exist, so how do we unify and organize together When you have different life experiences, cultures, ideologies, and perceptions of how we got here. How do we see the common ground and fight things that causes harm? The first step, we have to re-educate ourselves. Understand that the fight is not with each other. It's the systems that don't even acknowledge our basic human rights. That have been exploiting us for centuries. Our country has been founded on racism and our structure functions because of the exploitation of poor people across all lines, culture and race included. But we have to face this issue and unpackage the racism itself within our systems and within our daily lives and build relationships with each other to develop into leaders because we're all breathing the same toxic air, living in the same food desert, trying to survive in a system that doesn't care about our health or our well-being. We have to stand up together, demand that our basic human rights be acknowledged and take action to the fate, to change the fate of our community together. And that's why we're building our community land trusts. That's why we want to create community driven development so that the next time a development like the incinerator rolls into town, our neighborhood would have the power and the resources to say no. We would be ready to fight back. And we can continue to build a healthy community that we love and a a city that we love together. Thank you.